Man is born unto trouble as the sparks fly upward. That's what Job says. Certainly that's true, and that's true for every sinner. It is a mark of life in a cursed world that all of the sons of Adam would be born to adversity. Now, friend, all of that's certainly true, but you and I know that though it's very common to be afflicted, it's not the case that every person responds to affliction the same way. It's not the case that all of us think about those difficulties in the same way. So, friend, when you take up our text this evening, which is the sixth psalm, you and I find the godly man's response to that which is so very common to men. Here you and I see something of not only his response to affliction, but you also see how the man meditates upon it. You get a glimpse, as it were, as the heart ponders the difficulties that are set to his hand. You get a cross-section of the godly man under adversity. My friend, as this is our text this evening, I want you to notice that that really as the psalmist presents to us these things, he he does so in three ways. He begins, first of all, with petition. Verses 1 to 5, under the difficulties that he's facing, he finds outlet in prayer. But in verses 6 to 7, he falls away from the throne of grace for a moment to describe at greater depth the manner of his affliction. He gives to us something of the depth of the pain that he's faced. And then in verses 8 to the end, you have a striking affirmation, a confession of the man's faith. And now these three components, as you look at them, the first two, I suppose, make perfect sense to us. The man is driven from his affliction to prayer, and then he falls back to meditate on the difficulties with which he's faced. But then as you look at verses 8 to 10, you, you see something that's quite different than the previous sections. You see a man who seems to have forgotten his difficulties. A man who turns even to his adversaries confidently, knowing that the Lord hath heard and indeed will deliver. Now, if we hold all three of these sections together, the the petition, the description, and the affirmation, what do we learn? Well, the first thing that I want to set before you is perhaps the one that's most obvious, but we can't miss it. It's that which you find in the first verse. We find there something of how the godly man meditates on the affliction with which he's faced. He says, rebuke me not, neither chasten me in thy hot displeasure. A friend, through all of the difficulties that he's faced with, the psalmist has an eye to the hand of God. And what he recognizes, first of all, the way that he thinks, the way that he meditates on these difficulties, is by acknowledging that it comes from God and it comes as divine chastening. He is currently being rebuked for sin. For that reason, the sixth psalm has long been classified among six others as being the traditionally named penitential psalms. These are the psalms that in the early church and right throughout the running centuries were turned to for us to see something of a pattern of how men are are to repent. And in the sixth psalm, especially whenever they feel the chastening hand of God upon them, the psalmist sees that this is rebuke, he recognizes that this affliction is sent as divine chastening, and so the entirety of this psalm is characterized by a man seeking mercy 
from the rod. What you have here is a man who acknowledges that the sins that he has committed are now being rebuked through this affliction. And he goes to God in prayer, seeking mercy. But also, as you look at those last several verses, he does so with contrition and manifestly with faith. Here you have, here you have two trains of thought, two works within the heart of the psalmist. One, to drive him to reflect on his sin and to see this affliction as being a true rebuke to it. That's on the one hand, while on the other, the man nonetheless confidently and with faith approaches God, claiming promises, expecting mercy. My friend, all that being so, the psalm teaches us very succinctly that the godly seek mercy with contrition and faith. The sixth psalm shows us that the godly seek mercy with contrition and faith. I want us to see that under three headings. I want us to see, first of all, how the psalmist brings to us his condition, how he glimpses, secondly, his contrition, and finally, how he presents to us the grounds for his consolation. So take, first of all, his condition. If you look at the second verse, he describes it for us. He says, I am weak. And then he goes on to say that his bones are vexed. And the sense there is that the affliction with which he's faced is of the most pressing, of the most painful sort. In other words, this is not something on the surface. This is not a slight difficulty. He feels it in the depths of his being. And then as you come to verses 6 and 7, he describes further what he means. He says, he is weary with his groaning all the night. He makes his bed to swim. And then he ends, of course, there the seventh verse, saying that it is because of all of his enemies. Now, first of all, as we look at the first description just mentioned there in verse 6, you notice that he says that he's weary with his groaning and in such a way that he knows no rest throughout the night. The affliction is such that it keeps him waking. And then he says, not only is he waking, but he is so distressed, as he says here, that he waters his couch with his tears. There is no rest for this man. He feels this pain in the inmost part of his being, and there is no place either day or night, where he doesn't feel as though he's stalked by it. But then as you go back just for a moment to the third verse, after describing these, these, very, physical, these very physical responses to his pain, he says in verse 3 that my soul is also vexed sore. And you're, you're supposed to understand that that's not an afterthought for the psalmist. It's not as though the psalmist is describing all these bodily difficulties and then he, he says, and, and also, by the way, my soul is in difficulty as well. That's not the way you're supposed to see it. The text in the original makes this quite emphatic. In other words, he's making something of an ascendancy. He's dealing with those pains that are least pressing, namely his bones being vexed, to that point, to that highest affliction, and that is that his soul is distressed. His spiritual affliction is the greatest of all. And then really to reinforce just the extremity to which the psalmist has been driven, you have something of a request there in that third verse. Where he says, but thou, O Lord, how long? Friend, if you notice, 
That's not a complete question. In fact, it's as though the psalmist is interrupting himself as he makes petition. The pain, as it were, is, is really elegantly encapsulated in the fact that the question is not complete. There, the, the, the thoughts that rush into his mind, as it were, are here represented to us with a question that stops short. All of this just elegantly, magisterially showing to us the exquisite pain with which he's faced. Now, friend, as we look at this condition set before us so, so graphically in the psalm, what do we learn? Friend, what we find here is that divine chastening, it engages both body and soul. At the very least, that's what we ought to see here. Divine chastening engages body and soul. It's something of an illustration of what the preacher reminds us of in Hebrews 12. He says there, no chastening for the present seemeth to be joyous, but grievous. And certainly the psalmist would concur. This is an affliction that penetrates every aspect of his being. It touches his very soul. And what you see in this psalm as well is that there's something of a reciprocity of influence between body and soul under this rod. What I mean by that is as you follow the psalmist in his thinking about his condition, you wonder how much is his soul leading him to tears and not just his physical condition. In other words, what you find here is that the soul is influencing the body in this moment as well as the body influencing the soul. He is a single creature, a man endowed with body and soul, and he's integrated even, even under affliction. His bodily ailment works against his soul and vice versa. And friend, what you see in this moment then is that this man is a man under what we have to say would be distracting conditions. It's one thing, I suppose, for somebody to be physically afflicted, but to be tranquil of soul. It's one thing for someone to, be, to face adversity and certain providences that are exterior to them, but another to, to be faced with those self-same difficulties while within the soul is vexed. That's a different kind of affliction altogether. Often they go hand in hand. The scriptures show that much to us. But what you and I are supposed to see here is that the chastening that the psalmist is faced with is one that is eminently distracting. Now that's his condition. I want you to notice, though, secondly, his contrition. Now, if we go back to verse 1 just for a moment, we are, we are met immediately with the fact that that's how the psalmist sees this. In other words, he sees that, that God is rebuking him for sin. Rebuke me not in thine anger, neither chasten me in thy hot displeasure. He traces here the cause of his difficulty back to sin. Now, I want you to notice too, friend, that in that first verse, there are qualifiers that we could quickly overlook. He is not praying here that God would remove from him all rebuke and all chastening. It's not the totality of rebuke that he prays against. It is a certain kind of chastening that he prays to be delivered from. Again, note, he says, Rebuke me not in thine anger, neither chasten me in thy hot displeasure. What do we make of that language? Why the qualification? If you go to the prophecy of Jeremiah, you'll find something that's quite similar. 
There the prophet prays, O Lord, correct me, but with judgment, not in thine anger, lest thou bring me to nothing. Those two descriptors that are deployed there, that is, namely, in divine anger and in, in God's hot displeasure. In the scriptures, those are especially deployed to highlight strict divine justice. In other words, when God comes to sinners, not out of a fatherly correction, but out of a desire to mete out his justice upon souls, that we would describe as God visiting a soul in his anger and in his hot displeasure. When God deals with souls according to the rigor of the law, that, says the psalmist, is what he prays not to know. He doesn't pray against all rebuke, all chastening. It is that rebuke and that chastening that flows from divine justice alone that he prays to be delivered from. A friend, what you see here is the very kind of thing that you recognize throughout the Psalter. Psalm 130, Psalm 143, both reminding us that if any stand under that kind of chastening, friend, none, none would be saved. As the psalmist so eloquently puts it, there is none in the sight of God who could stand justified if that kind of rigor was applied to them. The psalmist prays that he would not be subjected to that kind of judgment. But I also want you to notice this. In verse 5, he says, as he prays, he asks a question, In the grave, who shall give thee thanks? He's not making a reference here to eschatology. He's not telling us what, is, what happens after the grave. The man's focus is very much on the land of the living. And what he is saying is, as I look to a sepulcher, as I look to a cadaver, I don't see and I don't hear the, 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 the effects of one's praise. No, that's not the case at all. And the sense friend here is, is certainly synecdochial. What he's saying here is essentially that that as God is, is bringing this rod upon him, well, he's brought to a point of distraction where his praise is muted in the land of the living. And the psalmist's chief desire in all of this, and we can't miss this, even though he speaks in general terms, he's thinking of himself. He's praying that the Lord would raise him out of this adversity that he might praise without distraction. We'll see that in just a moment. But I want you to notice here then, as we look at his contrition, we see that godly, true contrition, that is, acknowledges sin's merit as well as God's worth. I just want to demonstrate that to you very briefly. I want you to notice, first of all, how this contrition recognizes that the man is under chastening. Now, what you notice in this psalm is that he doesn't mention any particular sins. As he goes before God and recognizes that he is being rebuked, he does not say... He does not say in the course of the psalm what particular sins he identifies. But he notices, but he is, he is under God's rod. Of that much he is sure. Practically, we might ask the question, how does he know? We know, of course, from the book of Job, from elsewhere in scripture, that God at times in a sovereign dispensation toward his own he will, by way of trial, bring them under adversity, rather than for particular sins. 
So how does the psalmist know which is the case? Friend, allow me to submit to you that, that on a practical level, that question is really unnecessary. If we remember the fact, friend, that even whenever temptations or afflictions especially are brought to us, and they are to try our faith, they are still supposed to meet with greater repentance in us. In other words, every adversity is is sent to us to drive us to greater repentance, whether it's a trial or a faith, or it's brought for particular sins. And in fact, as we've said before, Calvin, I think, so very helpfully reminds us that even when difficulties are brought by trial from God, even then, friend, you recognize that those would be unnecessary if there were no indwelling sin in us. In other words, even those trials that that are afflicting, those are a kind of smelting work because there's still dross within. Meaning that every affliction, friend, in that sense, every affliction, it should drive us to repentance. We should respond to every affliction with self-examination and contrition. But as you come secondly to how the psalmist really sets before us the manner of his repentance. You notice this. It's subtle, but it's in the first verse. He says, Rebuke me not in thine anger, neither chasten me in thy hot displeasure. Again, friend, we recognize he is under rebuke and chastening already. But what is subtle, but no less present, is the fact that he recognizes that he has not yet faced God's displeasure from his wrath or his hot displeasure. In other words, friend, he recognizes as exquisite as this pain is, as distracting as this vexation has proven to be for him, he has yet to receive, he has yet to receive what sin deserves when God deals with men according to the rigor of the law. Do you recognize that? Friend, he is saying here that notwithstanding all of the difficulties he's faced, he knows still that he has not yet received what sin justly deserves. Thirdly, I want you to notice that not only do we see something of the man's contrition, turning away from sin and humbling himself under this rod, but we also see the desire You know, friend, when we think about repentance, it's important for us to understand that it's not purely a negative work. It's not just turning away from something. It's not just humiliation and turning away from sin. That's not repentance. In fact, that's not repentance at all, unless there's something else added to it. It cannot just be mortification, the killing of sin. It must also be vivification, living unto God. And so how do we see that in our psalm? Well, we see it in this, in that question, in the grave, who shall give thee thanks? Why is that question there? Friend, really pointedly, it's there because this is the psalmist's great desire. His great desire is that God would deliver him from these difficulties so that his praise might more clearly sound forth. He longs to keep his testimony now in the land of living, to make it while the Lord gives him breath. And to reinforce that that's how we're supposed to understand this, allow me just to recall to you a very similar text, Psalm 39. 
The psalmist there again, under the rod of God, he says, I was dumb, I opened not my mouth, because thou didst it. Remove thy stroke away from me, I am consumed by the blow of thine hand. Note what he says there though. He says, through this affliction he was rendered dumb. He was not able to speak. And friend, as you look at the whole of Psalm 39, his great desire is that he would be removed from those distractions that as it were shut his mouth, so that he could praise and praise more forcefully, more clearly. Now, what does this teach us? Well, friend, as we see that that's the psalmist's desire in our text, you recognize, friend, that he's not praying to be removed under, from misery as an end in itself. That which drives him to supplicate for the mercy of God in this moment is simply for God's sake. As you look at this entire display of contrition for us, that we've just briefly considered, what is the psalmist saying? Well, let's start with the fact that he recognizes that he's not yet received what sins deserve. If you ask the psalmist under this affliction, he would not tell you that it could be worse. He would tell you that if God was dealing with him according to his law, according to naked justice, it should be worse. That's striking whenever you contemplate how graphically the psalmist has described his pain. But then secondly, I want you to notice this. Even as difficult as this is, his great desire is not for deliverance itself, but for deliverance to praise. He desires mercy. Not for himself, but for God's sake. But thirdly and finally as we close, as we look at those verses 8 to 10, you notice that the tone shifts dramatically. It begins, depart from me. He turns away from the Lord. He turns away from us and he turns to his afflictors, to his enemies. And he says, depart from me. And why? And he causes, for the Lord, for the Lord hath heard. Now this is an affirmation. It's an affirmation made by a man who is still under affliction. We know that, friend, because in a sense, the psalmist can still turn to his adversaries who are around him. The man, in other words, is still under the pinching, the pain of this chastisement. In other words, he's still, friend, a man who is watering his couch with his tears. But he is absolutely confident that his cries were heard by God. And moreover, that God will deliver. Now, you have to ask the question, how does he know? To practically apply this psalm, the question is, how does he know that God has heard? How does he know that God will deliver? Allow me to answer that negatively, first of all. He doesn't learn that from any token in providence. Nothing in the present circumstance of the psalmist would have told him as much. He is still surrounded by his enemies. So, friend, how does he know? Friend, he knows because he's exercising faith on the divine promise that was made out to him in the word. 
Take, for example, what we read from Job 33. There, Elihu tells Job that if a sinner turns to God, confesses his sin, that God will deliver him. And then he says this, that not only does God do this from time to time, but God does this often with men. This is God's modus operandi, says Elihu. My friend, it's not the case that necessarily every affliction you and I will be delivered from, even if forgiven. The thief on the cross still dies on the cross as a consequence of his sin, even though he does not die judged by the divine law. But it is the case, friend, that the psalmist recognizes that God does lift his chastening hand. That God does grant forgiveness. He does give pardoning grace when men under the rod turn from their sin and to him. Faith in this case looks to that word of promise. And just very, just very briefly, that word could be quickly encapsulated in simply the words of the prophet Isaiah. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. And let him return unto the Lord, and he will have mercy upon him, and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. Friend, the psalmist hangs his life on those truths, and by faith. I want you to notice, friend, that though it's free mercy that sinners receive in such a case, in a text like that, God has bound himself to his word. Should any truly repent, God must pardon and pardon abundantly. Hebrews 6 says all of that language, all of those vows that God has made, is for the strengthening of our faith. And here you see the psalmist, friend, even surrounded by tokens of God's displeasure. He says, as I have forsaken sin, God certainly will pardon. That is a certainty. As we apply this text to ourselves, friend, you see several themes here that that are large and so eminently practical. The first is perhaps a question to us, and that is, do we see affliction as a summons to humiliation and repentance? Do we see affliction as the psalmist does? We need not divine whether or not it's a trial of our faith or if it's sent for particular sins. We need, in both cases, to engage in self-examination and to renew our repentance. And so do we see affliction as summoning us to that work? And friend, furthermore, whenever you are, whenever you are brought to such distracting pain, can you say with the psalmist, nevertheless, I have yet to feel what my sin deserves? Again, I can't can't help but go back to the fact that the psalmist would not tell us, as it were, to, to lessen his pain, to say, well, it could be far worse. In this psalm, he says, it should be far worse if God deals with me according to the law's rigor. Friend, do we feel that when faced with affliction? Do I tell myself that 
that this is in fact far less, does not even approximate, is not even analogous to that which my sins deserve. And in fact, no soul out of hell, however tormented, however afflicted in this life, has even come close to what their sins deserve. Friend, those are the kinds of questions that the psalm asks of us. Do we see those experiences in the like way? As we look at this text, friend, what you find here as well, is that howsoever real, howsoever painful these difficulties were for the man, the promises were no less real to him. His adversaries, he could see, he could hear, and the affliction from their hand he could feel. And yet in verses 8 to 10, he reminds us that such was his faith that the promises of God's pardon were just as real to him. Verse 4, he also tells us, friend, that he is relieved, not because of his repentance as such. His repentance has merited nothing from the hand of God. His faith has merited nothing from the hand of God. If he is received, it is for the Lord's mercy's sake. Our repentances, as Augustine so wonderfully reminds us, requires repentance because it's impure. Our greatest act of faith contains within it so many impurities, impurities for which we ought to repent. And so, friend, the hope of the psalmist in ours is not the strength of our repentance and faith. The hope is that God, for his mercy's sake, will pardon as he has promised all those who exercise genuine faith. As we close, friend, the exhortations from this text, first of all, urge us to make afflictions occasions of repentance and humiliation. God does not deal lightly with a stout heart under affliction and adversity. He expects his people to lay low before them. Friend, even in the case of Job, even when he was not there being chastened for particular sins, you remember how the Lord deals with him once Job becomes stout of heart. The rebukes at the end of the book of Job, they're excoriating. Yes, measured, but excoriating. God expects every occasion of affliction to make the man humble and to encourage them in repentance. But the second thing, friend, is as well that you and I are supposed to apply believingly for grace. Under the rod, you and I are expected to cry out, even though we recognize our sins deserve so much more than we felt. Yet here the psalmist gives us the example that we are to apply believingly for grace. That is, by exercising faith upon the Lord Jesus Christ and him alone. But thirdly and finally, friend, what you find as well in this text is that there is an exhortation here that we don't live for ourselves. The psalmist lives for the praise of God. He sues for mercy for God's sake. He pleads for grace. 
that his heart might more actively, more clearly extol the goodness of God. Friend, this is also an exhortation for us that we are to live for him and that we're even to desire mercy for the Lord's sake. We will in just a moment take up the psalm in praise. But as we close, I think it's important for us to recognize that here as we begin, we find a man who's faced with difficulty, like all men are. But here you don't find a natural man. Here you find a man who loves God, who loathes sin, and who makes affliction an occasion to drive him from sin and to the Lord. And so may it be that as we take these words up in the sung praise of God, that the Lord would lead us to see affliction in the same light and for his sake. Amen.